Hebrews chapter 9, we'll start in verse 15 and uh, read down to verse 28. If you are a guest here with us today or this is the first time you've been here, we normally just work through a book of the Bible. We've been in the book of Hebrews since January. We are at chapter 9 now and the argument is fully moving forward. This is written by a preacher to his church. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is a pastor that wrote to a church under persecution in a very difficult culture. Could have been Rome, not completely sure. A church that was filled with people that had professed Christ and yet struggled with holding on in the face of a world that was turning against everything they believed. He's encouraging them to hold on. And the way he does it here is he takes them right to the cross of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 9. So if you found that, why don't you stand? We'll read together God's Word. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 9, start in verse 15, and uh, read down. There's, there's a lot in this passage. You'll see it from uh, verse 15 to verse 28. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's begin right there, verse 15. This is what he says. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself and just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Join me as we pray. <clears throat> Father, I pray in the name of, of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we ask You, the same Spirit that inspired these words, we ask now that You give us ears to hear. 
Father, I pray that you keep me from saying anything that steps outside of what this passage means, but only that which is honoring to you and good for your people that exalts Jesus. And so help us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Saturdays are typically uh, the same almost every Saturday, if I can get away with it. Do like a routine. Yesterday we got up early and read the Bible and normally would go on a walk or mess around the house or clean up something there. I worked out of my shed, straightening it up, and then lunchtime rolls around and I'll sit down to eat a little lunch. Connie and I will. Yesterday I had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, some Cheeto puffs, cheer wine, and four Oreos. And that's typically what I'll eat if I can get away with it every lunch. I eat about like a nine-year-old. Sat down to eat my lunch, and uh, Connie came in there with me and turned on the television, and she found us something to watch. And amazingly, she went to where the documentaries are. She knows my love language. And landed on a documentary of John Wesley. John Wesley, the founder, he and his brother of Methodism. And it was a fascinating thing to watch. I'd already read plenty of John Wesley, but just to hear it laid out before us. Here is a man that grew up in a home with a godly mother, in fact, she was so methodical, she probably is the one that gave him the thoughts of how to be so methodical and laid the groundwork for Methodism. He grew up with a dad that was a preacher and a godly mother with all kinds of brothers and sisters. And he grew up knowing and hearing the good things of the Lord. But he grew up not yet a Christian. He was religious. In fact, he was so religious, he went off to Oxford to be a pastor to follow in his daddy's footsteps. And after being a pastor, he had a heart for doing things for people. You know, you can be nice and not be a Christian. He wanted to help people so much so that he and his brother got on a boat and crossed the Atlantic, came here to America right close by in Georgia. He went there to preach the gospel to the Indians. But he would say later, I, I went there to preach the gospel, but I was going to preach the gospel that I did not know. On the way to America, they crossed in a wooden clipper ship and uh, through a terrible storm. And the storm was so bad that everybody on the ship thought they were going to die, including John Wesley. But there were some Moravians on the ship down below, and they weren't scared like everybody else. They were singing hymns together in the midst of a storm. And it stuck with him. Got to America, went terribly, a broken relationship, and he had to actually get out of Georgia and headed back to England. But he was fascinated by the Moravians, so much so that he went to Germany to spend some time with them. And, and although not yet saved, he was intrigued by what they had. They had something he didn't have. And one day when he was back in London, he was invited to a Bible study at Aldersgate. Didn't want to go to it. He went there and a man stood and read now just the commentary, not, not the Bible itself, but the commentary that Martin Luther wrote on the gospel of grace found in Romans. And as he heard it, John Wesley said that my heart, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I, I felt that I did trust Christ and Christ alone for salvation. And, and an assurance, Wesley would go on to say, an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And that day the Holy Spirit would dig a well in that man's life. The Holy Spirit would dig a well of joy in his heart. And that well of joy sustained him through a lifetime of struggle and pain and persecution and 
turmoil. Even his home life was terrible. He married a woman that didn't even like him. And, and God sustained him through all of that. And he died an old man. And we look back in history and he's lifted up for us as an example of joyful Christianity. I don't just want you to be a Christian. I want you to know that it is a joyful thing to be a Christian. The kind of Christianity that's going to sustain you. There are people sitting in this room right now that have been through a terrible week. Saw a woman beforehand, came up, and sister in Christ, her sister died last night. Here she is worshiping. I preached uh, this morning at, at the main campus, Harris, and I know there were people there. One man had just buried his wife on Friday. What is it that makes it so you can walk through that? The kind of Christianity that sustains us, that covers us, that, that, that strengthens us. A Christianity squarely planted. This is why we have the Lord's Supper. A Christianity that is squarely planted in the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. And in this passage, that means that you and I, when we read it, you and I should be thinking deeply about the blood of Jesus. And, and why the blood of Jesus is central to actually being a Christian and, and is central to actually having Christian joy in your life. It's why we remember the blood of Jesus with the Lord's Supper. And not only that, I think this passage actually gives us attitudes to have and things to do as men and women who profess Jesus Christ as Lord. Because if Jesus, think of it like this, if Jesus is Lord, then life is good. I would say that backwards too. If life is not good, then could it be that Jesus is not Lord? What do we do from this passage? Let's go to it in verse 15 and what do we, when we read it, what do we need to do? Here's the first one I'd like to suggest. Number one, let's just rejoice in our mediator. Rejoice in our mediator. The word mediator, it's a biblical word. You'll find it there in verse 15. But before we get to that, you see that word therefore? Verse 15, the word therefore tells us that there's something he's going to say that is based on something he has already said. What he has already said is, since Jesus has entered into God's presence through His death and resurrection, and cleansed your conscience from sin through His blood, verse 15, therefore He is a mediator. He is the mediator of a new covenant. What is a mediator? Mediator is someone who stands between two parties. We need a mediator. God is so holy and we are so sinful that God will not fellowship with us. We can't fellowship with Him. We need a mediator. The Bible tells us that there is one God and one mediator. That is the man, Jesus Christ. What does the mediator do? He stands between us as the God-man who lived righteously in a way we can't, died in our place. God raised him from the dead. And the promise of the gospel is anybody that believes that is saved. He makes it so that you actually can know God. We need to rejoice in our mediator. 
But you'll notice something else. Verse 15 is filled with all kind of words. Notice what we are labeled as in verse 15. Join me there. <clears throat> Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Here's the purpose. So that those who are called. You ought to circle that word called. All through the Bible, Paul uses it like this, that the word called describes believers. The word called means people not just that have been invited, but that have been summoned. They used to call this the effectual call, that the power of God is in actually in the call. And we, when we pray for lost people, you pray for friends that are not Christians, we're asking God to call them in such a way that their hearts awaken to that truth. This is more, this is more than just an invitation. Graduation have come uh, the last couple of weeks. You probably have seen social media, lots of graduates, and we congratulate every one of you. You get an invitation to graduation, and there at the bottom it has an RSVP. You have a decision to make. Will you respond to that? This is more than just an invitation. Here is the power of God moving. We're asking the Spirit of God. When you pray, we ask the Spirit of God to move. The effectual call. Who is He the mediator for? He is the mediator for those that have been called. Not only that, notice what is granted. See the words there of inheritance, the promised eternal inheritance. Right there in verse 15. Let me read it to you. He's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called, this is what we receive, the promised eternal inheritance. Look at the certainty of this great inheritance. It is a promised inheritance that the gift of God's grace through Jesus doesn't depend on anything we do. It depends on what God has said and what He has done in Christ. Not just, the, not just the quality or the certainty. Look at the quality of this inheritance. It is an eternal, imperishable inheritance, an un, unchangeable, unlosable inheritance. There's another word down there in, in verse, I mean, verse 15 is so filled with great words. Therefore, he is a mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called, we talked about that, may receive what? The promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems. We've described that word before. It's a word that would be known in the slave market. It means to buy a person, to give an amount of money for a person. I'm reading a book now right now entitled um, The Last Slave Ship to America. It's called the Clotilda. The, the ship was named the Clotilda. It came into the Mobile Bay and up the Mobile River. 110 souls from Africa, stolen. The very last one, they got them all off and burned the ship and sunk. I just found it just a few years ago. And there was such an interest in this story. That in the 1920s, uh, newspaper reporters would go to Mobile to interview some of the living people that had come from Africa, spent five years in slavery from 1860 to the Civil War's end in 1865, and interview them in the 1920s. One of, them, one of them's name is Cujo. You can go in the Mobile airport and see his picture, Cujo. Read about him just last night. <clears throat> Cujo says that he was sitting on the docks and Mobile in 1865 and the Union soldiers, Union soldiers came in and as the Union soldiers came in, the Confederate soldiers left and as they left, they dropped a match on all the cotton and everything on the docks and burned terrible flames and those that were 
in chattel slavery didn't know what to do and asked the soldiers, what do we, what do we do? And the Union soldiers told them, you do whatever you want to do. And they still didn't, where should we go? And the Union soldiers, you, it's over. You go wherever you want to go. And Cujo says that there's this, this mass joyful hysteria of people that had been in slavery having been set free. Now that word redeem, you should own that word because you are no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer a slave to what you might have been known by, something you've been through, someone you've hurt, something you've done that you think that sort of is the shadow of my life. You are not identified by that sin. You are not a slave to that sin anymore. You are not identified. The Bible says that you have been redeemed and we should rejoice in our mediator. Let's not re just rejoice in the mediator. I'll give you a second consideration, verse 16 and 17. Let's thank God for grace. Do you think deeply about grace? There are two illustrations in this passage. It's, it's complicated. The first illustration is pretty easy, verse 16 and 17. I'll deal with that here. There's a second illustration, verse 18 through 22. We'll deal with that in just a moment. Let's take a look at the first illustration. Right there, verse 16 and 17. It's the idea of a last will and testament. So if you have a rich relative and that relative has included you in the will, it's a morbid thing, but you are waiting on that rich relative to die so that that will benefits you. It's not any good as long as they're alive. It's the idea here. So if, uh, or if you are rich and you don't have anybody to have in your will, you can choose Connie and I if you'd like. <laughs> be very friendly to you until you leave here. It's, it's the idea, see? It, right there, verse 16 and 17, do you see it? Let me just catch the point of it. For where a will is involved, where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. It must be a death. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Something has to happen. This will is a promise of great riches that will be to the one that will receive them. But those riches don't happen until the death occurs. So the point that the preacher is saying is that there's this promised gift of God's grace given to us in Christ. But it doesn't come to us until Jesus died on the cross. Jesus Christ's death on the cross has activated this incredible riches of God's grace for us that have been poured out on His children. Now, now think about the riches of salvation. What are they? What are the, what are the gifts? What's, what's, in, what's the promise of this will? Well, the big one is you're forgiven of your sin. In Christ, what you receive is wonderful forgiveness. It's washed away. It, a great thing you receive is, is this, this wholeness. Look, life has a way of damaging us. You live long enough, you get beat up, you just get damaged. And what, what Christ does is repair, bring peace or, or wholeness. Maybe you've, never, maybe you've never felt like you would actually be whole again. And the promise of the gospel is, yes, 
you will be, that it gives us strength. The 8 o'clock service lady came in and she plays the harp at our 8 o'clock service and she's been away six months under chemotherapy and then we'll have radiation and she was so glad to be back. Talked to another woman that came in right before church and I know she's undergoing radiation thinking about the strength it takes to walk through some of the stuff that you've walked through. That's a gift of God. To have a real purpose in your life or genuine resilience, where does that come from? It's a good thing to remember the phrase, if it were not for the grace of God, I would be like that. Look, when you go to judge somebody, it's good for you to remember, if it weren't for God's grace in Christ, that's where I would be. You know what the grace of God does? It makes it so you can actually forgive people that have hurt you. The grace of God in this will that happens at the cross, it's, it's unleashed. What is unleashed? The ability to heal the ability to change. Do you know how dramatic conversion is? When we talk about people being saved, you are saved from being dead in sin to being alive in Christ. Only the power of God does that. You know that, that when you're saved, God can change your desires. If you used to be an alcoholic, He can change it so you don't desire that. He can change these sinful desires into something that is godly. Do you know that He can actually make it so that you love your enemies? That's what the gospel does. You, you understand that ours, ours is a movement of grace that is rooted. It has to, to find its genesis at the cross of Jesus. Let's rejoice in our mediator and let's thank God for grace. That's the first illustration, verse 16 and 17. Let's take a look at the second illustration. One is from the legal field, verse 18 through 22, then is from the Jewish religion. This second illustration is a little bit more complicated. I want you to read it slowly from verse 18 to verse 22. And as you do, what you're going to see six times is the word blood. He's making a point. So, so from this lavish use of the word blood, he's describing two great Old Testament institutions. And at the end of verse 22, he states a principle. So let me, let me read it all the way through. And the principle is at the very end in verse 22. Let's, let's go there and read it. Verse 18, let's start there. <clears throat> Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when, here's the first thing that happened. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet and wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Here's the second thing. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law... Almost everything is purified with blood. Here comes the principle. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. He says it six times, the, the word blood. He's reminding us that's the Old Testament sacrificial system is pointing to Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what Jesus said. This is why we have the Lord's Supper. 
This is what Jesus said at the Last Supper in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew tells us, Matthew 26, verse 27, that he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and he said to them, Drink, drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which will be poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, at the cross of Jesus, two things happen. Lots of things, I'll give you two. One is the covenant of God is ratified. So the promise of God of, of forgiveness, it's ratified at the cross. What does ratification mean? It is God's forgiveness is now valid. The, the will has been open and read and the benefits are pouring to you. The other is that, that God's people are sanctified, that you are able to pursue holiness. Look, this is why we take the Lord's Supper, not because it saves us. We don't believe that Taking the elements, for instance, in the Catholic Church, that doctrine is that you take mass, it becomes the body and blood of Jesus. That's not what we believe. That doesn't, that, that doesn't say that the salvation that God gives us is all grace through faith in Jesus. What we do is we center our lives. We are reminded, you see. We are reminded of the cost. What it means to be saved. So we need to rejoice in our mediator. We need to thank God for grace. And, and when we take the Lord's Supper, and I hope you'll do that today, we need to meditate on the cost. Let me give you another thought to consider. Make this the fourth point. You'll find it in verse 24. Let's trust. Let's trust our advocate. Do you know the word advocate? Let's trust our advocate. One of the greatest promises in the whole Bible, is found right there at the end of verse 24. Let me read it to you. <clears throat> For Christ has entered, not into the holy places made with hands, so not in the temple or into the tabernacle, which are copies of the true things. What has Christ done? He's gone where it counts. He's entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. One of the greatest promises in the entire Bible is found right there for you if you are a believer in Jesus. What Jesus has done is not some religious rite here on earth. What he has done has gone into the presence of God as an advocate, verse 24, and he did that on our behalf. I think the, uh, I think the apostle John covers this really well in 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 is a great passage to write down and memorize and keep in your heart. This is what he says. <clears throat> My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So it's good that you don't. You need to work and fight against sin. You're able to do that. But if anyone does sin, so if I were to say to you, raise your hand, if you are a sinner, every hand in this room would go up. The ones that stayed down were liars, you are sinners. <laughs> so, so 1 John says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you might not sin, but if anybody does sin, yes, we sin. That's bad news. The promised good news is the word advocate, 1 John. 
We have an advocate with the Father, that is Jesus, all man, Christ, all God, the righteous. We need to trust. Now, I hope that you have that kind of confidence in your own salvation, that you trust the work of Jesus for you. That you trust that Christ died on the cross in your place, that when he was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, that he's done so on your behalf. That's what verse 24 says, that he appears to God for you. And with that in mind, we need to just take the fifth point. Number five, let's rest. Let's rest in his work. Look, I believe in discipline. I believe in spiritual disciplines. I think your life ought to have that measure of discipline that shows an earnestness and love for God, that you are up early and reading the Bible, spending time in prayer and cultivating the disciplines of learning. I believe all of that. But let's not fall over on the cliff and say, that's how you're saved. Let's make sure that we are resting in the work of Christ. I'm going to show it to you in verse 26. You'll see all kinds. Verse 26 is like verse 15. Lots of words that you'd like to spend some time looking at. We'll just go quickly through it. For then he would have appeared, then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, the very end of the verse, as it is. So that's, hy that's hypothetical. As it is, verse 26. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. If you were to think that, take the thought blocks backwards. Sacrifice of himself, Jesus died on the cross. What for? To put away sin. He has appeared. If you read C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia, there you find Aslan, Aslan. And whenever Aslan appears, the snow in the winter is pushed back. And the summer comes in spring, there's life. When he has appeared, what did he appear and do? Once for all. That is the finished work of Christ. How did he finish and what did he finish? The text says, verse 26, he put away, that word put away, he removed. Look, not only is the devil dispossessed, and not only is the power of death overcome, but this verse, at the end of verse 26, tells us that sin is vanquished. Jesus doesn't just save us from the, the punishment of our sins. Jesus makes it so that the stronghold, the stranglehold of sin that used to be in your, some addiction you had, that the power of the gospel says that, that is broken. That sin, you got an anger problem, you lose your temper, that can be broken. You, you feel like you're addicted to pornography or something else. Look, the gospel, the power of the gospel is this. That is broken. The power of sin is gone. You can't quit talking about other people. You're a gossip. Look, the, this is what the gospel does. And, and what we need to do is rest in that work, the finished work of Jesus as he put away sin. Look, it gets even better down in verse 27. Verse 27 tells us that... Um, we shouldn't be afraid of death. Let's not, I'll say it like this, let's not be afraid of death. So Christ died voluntarily. That is, he died on purpose. He did that rescue. 
But that's not the case for us. Verse 27, just as it is appointed for man to die once and then after that, judgment. Christ died voluntarily. Our death, my death is, is appointed. There is this, um, there is this finality to dying. It's, it's distinct to the human existence. There's this life who's animated and personality and soul breathes her last and gone. There's something about human existence. It's, it's made even more important, more serious by the last phrase in verse 27. Look, the punch of verse 27 is not that it is appointed for man to die. Verse 27 tells us it is appointed for man to die once and then after that comes Judgment. There used to be a saying, I don't know if it's politically correct anymore, you might would say that that is serious as a heart attack. Serious as a heart attack. So a heart attack, the reason you're saying that, a heart attack is serious because it might carry you out of here. It's appointed to die once and then judgment. You can't decide when it's your time. It is appointed by God. My grandmother died uh, Thursday. She was 98 years old. She had lived almost 50 years after my granddad died when he was 55 years old. Neither of them would have chosen that right there. It is appointed. And then after that, judgment. You see, the seriousness is the judgment part. We're all going to die. It's what happens at judgment. That's what had, I started this sermon with John Wesley. That's what had John Wesley so fascinated by the Moravians how could they face death? Because they knew at judgment they would be declared righteous because of Jesus. Let's not be afraid of death. Let's instead, let's rebuild our lives. I'm asking you to rebuild your life. Notice it with me, verse 28. It's coming to a close here. Verse 28, Christ is pictured from something in Leviticus. So Christ having been offered, Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many. This preacher knew the Old Testament. He reached back into Leviticus and there he finds something called the scapegoat. The scapegoat was a ritual where the priest would put their hands on a goat and confess all the sins of the people over this goat. And that goat would be let out into the wilderness to go and wander. And the idea was all the sins of the people have been put on. The sin bearer. And, and the preacher pulls all of that forward. And he says, Christ. You know what Peter says? First Peter that He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. It's by His wounds. Verse 28 doesn't just tell us that our sins are gone. That, that is a reminder. We can rebuild our lives on the grace of God found in Jesus. And I'll just close with this one last one. And the Lord's Supper points us to this. Let's you and I live our lives in hope. Let's live in hope. Do you see that in verse 28? Notice how the preacher closes it out in verse 28. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, that's the scapegoat, once to bear the sins of many, 
will appear. He's coming a second time. Not to deal with sin, not to be crucified, but to save those who eagerly wait for Him. You see the great joy? The great joy of the Christian story is that there is a conclusion. There is a resolution. For, for everything that feels like it's all been sort of left undone, there is a promised joyful end, and that is the coming of the Lord Jesus. It is a great reminder of the hope we have. I mean, even as, <clears throat> even as Paul outlines the Lord's Supper, he says that we take the Lord's Supper, and every time we do it, we proclaim His death until He comes. You understand, right? That if Jesus is Lord, life is good. I want you to rejoice in the mediator. I want you to live in hope. Will you join me as we pray together? Let me invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads with me just for a moment. <clears throat> Today is a special day in that we take the Lord's Supper. There are some of you here that, that are not sure of where you are in your relationship to God. If that's the case, when we sing this morning, I'd like to invite you just to come forward. Let a pastor pray with you. Maybe further explain what it means to give your life to Jesus. The rest of you as believers, when we stand and sing today, before we take the Lord's Supper, I want you to sing as men and women who have been set free by the good grace of God given to us in Jesus. Father, thank you. Thank you for the grace that you give us in Christ. Thank you for the promise of Hebrews chapter 9. Lord, I pray that you might be close. Father, I pray that you might make yourself real. I pray in the name of Jesus that your spirit might forgive sin and heal souls, restore people to the joy of their salvation. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand please as we sing together? <clears throat>